German, the word Kriegspiel means war game, and that term was applied to a variety of different strategy games that attempted to replicate the thinking of commanders on a battlefield, including chess and chess derivatives, for most of history across the German-speaking world. But in the early 19th century, it was more specifically applied to a collection of games that utilized a grid and game pieces that were meant to replicate actual military units, like cavalry and artillery and infantry, across actual geographies, hills, forests, rivers, and so on. This game became quite popular, but it wasn't taken too seriously by the top military brass because it failed to capture the true complexity of strategizing for a real-world battlefield, and was still in many ways beholden to its ancestor games, in that all the pieces could only move one space per turn, the geographic features were limited to what the grid could present, so they were more angular and rigid than would be the case in the real world, and because they typically failed to replicate distance and military unit capabilities in any meaningful way. They were more board game than war game, in other words. Recognizing these shortcomings, an enthusiast of such games, and a Prussian nobleman, so a guy with education and plenty of money and time to spend on such an endeavor, named George Leopold von Reiswitz, developed an upgraded version of the game that still used little wooden blocks to represent different units, but those little wooden blocks were moved across a large game board adorned with tiles featuring different painted terrain, which could be rearranged to change up the battlefield from round to round, and a collection of measuring devices that showed how far different pieces could move across different tiles, while still allowing them to move in a relatively free and unlimited by any kind of grid fashion. This variation of the game was produced for the Prussian monarch, King Wilhelm III, and his family, and they loved it. The rules were not complete, and the game was far too fancy as produced to make more of them on scale, and there were still quite a few flaws that real-deal military experts found to be limiting so that it couldn't be used for their purposes. But as a means of entertaining other noblemen and women, it was a true success. Reiswitz more or less left wargaming behind after that success with caveats, but his son, George Heinrich Rudolf John von Reiswitz, was actually a member of the Prussian military, and with some other junior officers, they played and iterated this upgraded version of Kriegspiel and added quite a few more details and rules. They also introduced the concept of a moderator, or umpire, who would serve as an intermediary and game master for each game. Opposing commanders would write down their troop orders, 
hand those orders to the umpire, and the umpire would move the troops on the board based on dice rolls and other determinations made in secret away from the eyes of the commanders. This shift came with several added benefits, among them more realism, as a real commander on the battlefield has limited information, and having an umpire made simulating a kind of fog of war possible, so that you could keep both commanders in the dark as to what was happening on the other side until they would actually know about it in a real-world fight. And because although you can give orders in a war, you don't have absolute control over how those orders play out once given. And this mechanism allowed for those orders to be flubbed sometimes. The Elder Reiswitz's first very fancy version of this updated Kriegspiel concept was presented to the king in 1812, and he left wargaming by 1816. The younger Reiswitz's variation on the game, produced in collaboration with those other junior officers, was presented to the king and his senior generals in 1824, and the king again loved it, but this time around the generals did as well, and that resulted in a recommendation that the game be used to train military officers, and an order from the king that all regiments have a Kriegspiel set of their own to play and practice with. The younger Reiswitz set up a workshop where he could mass-produce this game, but a few years after that meeting, he was transferred to a very rural part of Prussia, apparently because he had said something that offended his military superiors. He committed suicide the following year, in 1827, and though the game continued to be played by those who had a set, it didn't get popular amongst the rank-and-file soldiers until decades later, in the wake of a series of rules updates, production innovations for the game board itself, and the introduction of new technologies like breech-loading cannons, railroads, and telegraph lines into the game's rules, which updated the strategy involved for war as it was beginning to be fought at that moment in time. The update that contained those new technologies also simplified the rules substantially, and a few years later, the Prussians were at war with Austria, and then, shortly thereafter, France, marking the end of a long period of peace for Prussia and revivifying interest in this game amongst Prussian army officers. By the 1870s, complaints about the complexity of certain aspects of Kriegspiel's rules and the difficulty of finding trained, experienced officers who would be willing to learn all of those complex rules in order to act as umpires for games led to another revamp of the rules that simplified the tasks for which the umpire was responsible, basically only keeping the dice to manage chance and probability and a table that determined losses based on those dice rolls, while also giving the umpire more leeway to call things as seemed to make sense based on the in-game circumstances and their judgment and experience. 
this new version of the game, usually called free Kriegspiel, as opposed to rigid Kriegspiel. The more rule-heavy version that came before helped the game become a lot more popular. Though there's another aspect of that popularity, too, that's difficult to measure, but which has become a bit of a truism in the story of Kriegspiel. That truism is predicated on the fact that the Prussians won the 1870 Franco-Prussian War, defeating the French and making very well-regarded use of new technologies like railways and artillery and setting themselves up to pull a collection of independent German states into their larger Germanic alliance as a consequence. So, kind of a strategic coup all around, and this win has been attributed by some to the Prussian military's long history of playing this type of war game. They had worked through different means of using new technologies, but also using existing military units and technologies in new ways over the course of decades by experimenting and exercising via these tabletop strategy games. And that set them up to have a significant strategic advantage over an opponent that did not have that same tradition and history of consistent off-battlefield, battlefield-related strategic training. Now, it's impossible to know whether this is the case for certain, and to what degree. And no matter how much experience the French had on the battlefield as of the time of this conflict, the Prussians did have a lot of other advantages on their side, including a larger military, better training, and more veteran leadership. What I'd like to talk about today is a modern variation of wargaming called Joint Military Exercises, which, superficially at least, serve many of the same purposes as tabletop games like Kriegspiel, but which often serve other geopolitical purposes as well. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I would like to start with two articles today, the first of which comes from the Washington Post, which is entitled, North Korea Threatens to Boost Nuclear Program Ahead of Drills Between U.S. and, quote, perfidious, end quote, South. And the second comes from Al Jazeera, and it's entitled, China and Russia Hold Large-Scale Joint Military Drills. Both of these pieces were published on the same day, August 10th of 2021, and both are focused on joint military exercises between nations, in the former case between the United States and South Korea, and in the latter case between China and Russia. Military exercises of this kind are similar, in most ways, to training exercises that take place on a continuous basis within individual militaries. They stay in fighting shape by performing drills, exercising, working on their target practice, and performing all sorts of maneuvers with other soldiers, with members of other wings of their national military, that sort of thing. 
Joint military exercises allow a pair or collection of militaries to achieve essentially the same ends, but they're able to do so within a larger context, a context that means the militaries of South Korea and the U.S. will have experience working alongside each other, fighting alongside each other, benefiting from each other's specialties, helping work through some of their individual weaknesses with the help of their exercise partner, and figuring out joint solutions to issues that are considered to be vital to a particular region, which in the case of the U.S. and South Korea will typically mean how would we respond if North Korea launched various sorts of attacks against South Korea or other nearby countries? How would we respond if China did something we didn't like, like invade Taiwan? And how might we reinforce the region to fill in gaps, be they related to the scale or type of military units available, or more systemic gaps, like difficulties that these two militaries have communicating with each other in certain contexts during the exercises? How might those gaps be filled now so that they don't become an issue if the real thing ever happens? These exercises can take a variety of forms. Some are essentially very big and fancy versions of the old-school Krigspiel game that I talked about in the intro, an exercise category typically called a simulation, and one that's often deployed across sectors to test responsiveness and figure out better ways to do things if North Korea should attack South Korea, but also if there happens to be a global pandemic or if ocean levels rise past a certain level and start to flood coastlines permanently around the world. Most joint military exercises have at least some live-fire components, which means real equipment is used, or in some cases very convincing facsimiles alongside real equipment. So actual rockets are launched, actual bullets are fired, actual things explode, and are reduced to actual rubble. In most live-fire scenarios, but also many non-live-fire scenarios that are still meant to be as realistic as possible, because they simulate things like jet fighter dogfights or hostage-taking terrorists in a civilian area, most of these require what is typically called an aggressor or adversary squadron, which has been specifically trained to behave and fight in the style of and with the weaponry of the opposing force in a given scenario. That means when U.S. forces were training for combat scenarios in Afghanistan, they would train against other soldiers who specialized in fighting like the Taliban. And during the Cold War, both U.S. and Soviet air forces would use captured or black market purchased versions of their opponents' fighter jets to simulate air combat and refine their tactics over time. So if and when an actual dogfight took place, the theory was that they would stand a better chance of coming out on top because they've run through exactly that sort of situation again and again against people who use similar strategies and tactics and equipment as those used by the folks they would be facing in real life. 
in a few cases that we know about, such exercises, these very detailed simulations, have seemed so real that the in-simulation opponent, the real one out in the real world, worried that it wasn't a simulation at all. Probably the most famous example of a simulation spiraling out of control and almost resulting in some very negative outcomes was the annual NATO, the alliance that was built by the U.S. and Europe to oppose the spread of the Soviet Union, the annual NATO Able Archer Exercise in 1983. This was what's called a command post simulation, which basically meant a group of people got together and played a very elaborate war game that simulated a series of escalatory moves between NATO and the Soviet Union. This 1983 version of the exercise was novel in a few ways, though, including the introduction of new types of simulated communication and the participation of actual real-world heads of state. Because of additional and novel types of interagency chatter related to this upgraded simulation and the participation of these real-deal government leaders alongside escalating tensions in the real world, including the forthcoming deployment of fancy new upgraded nuclear missiles in West Germany and elsewhere throughout Europe by NATO, some heads of the Soviet government and military thought that this was actually a fake simulation intended to conceal the buildup of forces leading toward a real first strike against the Soviet Union. So the Soviets did what you might expect and got their nukes ready. They put their air force on standby status and they basically primed all of the pumps so that if this thing they thought was a ruse turned out to in fact be a ruse, they could hit back at least as hard as they got hit. Likely, based on pretty dire studies that have been done on the matter, ending a good deal of life on the planet as a consequence, which was the same math the U.S. was using at the time, to be clear, the logic of mutually assured destruction. But this case demonstrates how dangerous such a posture can be when communication is not open and clear, and trust between opposing parties is far from perfect. In 1990, we learned a bit about how close the world had come to nuclear destruction back in 1983 during this Abel Archer simulation, when a U.S. government report on the matter was declassified. We learned more details, most of them terrifying, in early 2021, when more of those documents were declassified. Between all of these declassified documents, we learned that the Abel Archer simulation involved the aerial transportation of 19,000 soldiers across 170 sorties from the U.S. to bases around Europe. These and other planes, most of them hauling cargo, also maintained radio silence as part of their communication policy, which had not been the case in previous Able Archer simulations. And the B-52 bombers that were used in the exercise hauled fake nuclear weapons that apparently looked quite real. The idea was to get the soldiers and other crew involved ready just in case. But the Soviets were also monitoring all of this 
And so to them, from their perspective, you could see how it might appear as if something significant had changed, and they could be reduced to dust with very little warning, without a chance to strike back against their aggressor if they weren't careful. We now know that the Soviets actually got as far as loading actual nuclear weapons onto planes throughout Eastern Europe before things calmed down. But we also know, and this is part of why this story has become such a well-repeated anecdote of military and Cold War history, we know that a U.S. lieutenant general named Leonard Perutz figured out that a bunch of very strange activity over in the Warsaw Pact side of Europe was likely a response to their own U.S. and NATO-based Able Archer very strange activity, and as such, advised against responding to it. A response that could have seemed to confirm to the Soviets their incorrect suspicions, which then could have led to action. Whereas at this point, there was only alarming and alarmed preparation. This whole hullabaloo led to some significant consequences, including a back channel between the White House and the Kremlin in order to avoid such misunderstandings in the future. But also the story of this exercise itself, which has served as kind of a morality tale, indicating that individual people can help deter nuclear devastation, or perhaps just World War III, and that clearer communication overall can keep two enemies who don't actually want to fight from doing so. This lesson continues to be relevant today because although there is some evidence that putting on these kinds of military exercise productions, holding joint military exercises in particular, may have some kind of deterrent effect, resulting in more restraint between those holding the exercises and those who are watching them and who typically serve as the opponent in them. There is also concern that they may, in some other cases, actually further inflame already irritated relations, as is the case with that mid-August 2021 exercise being held by the U.S. and South Korea. North Korea throws a geopolitical fit, usually utilizing very colorful language as they do so, every time this exercise, or another similar nearby exercise, takes place. And though some of this might be posturing and an effort by North Korea to basically seek out placating gifts by playing the victim, while also not so surreptitiously saber-rattling, their complaints could also be reflective of genuine concern that one of these days, one of these exercises will turn out to be a front for a real invasion of North Korea. The country, after all, is not exactly Stalinist in nature, but not super far off from it either. And it's likely that more than one government around the world would love to knock over the Kim regime, given the opportunity to do so in a relatively clean way. So their fears in that regard are not 100% unfounded. Also mid-August, Russia and China are holding joint military exercises, 
involving more than 10,000 ground troops alongside air forces from both militaries. Like with the U.S. and South Korea, this is not the first time Russia and China have held this type of exercise. They've been holding variations of it since 2005. But it is, apparently, the first time Russian soldiers will be using Chinese weapons, and Russia sent newfangled weapons that they want to put on display to China for them to use as well. So there's some indication that this exercise might represent a turning point in terms of regional military hardware commercial relationships, if nothing else, but also potentially an outward-facing reminder that the U.S. and its allies are not the only military powers on the planet. This exercise is being framed by those involved as being part of a larger effort by Russia and China to, quote, jointly safeguard international and regional security and stability, end quote, while also deepening their, quote, joint anti-terrorism operations, end quote which is almost certainly at least partially true, especially as the conflict in Syria drags on and new conflicts in Afghanistan pick up with the extraction of U.S. and allied forces in the region this month. But that's also the type of language countries use when they don't want to go out and overtly say, yeah, if someone like the U.S. attacks us, we want to be ready. And if nothing else, we want to be able to threaten them convincingly enough that they generally let us do what we want the way that we want to do it without bothering us. Such exercises held by the U.S. and other countries are meant to convey the same general don't mess with us message while also reflecting a real need to prepare to work together in case things go sideways in a big way and to be ready in case they need to work together more tactically in smaller conflicts or to knock out terrorist cells, things like that. Worth noting here is that all this preparation and posturing is not without cost. Soldiers have to be paid. Fuel is expended. Ammo is spent. The price tag on these exercises can be pretty high. We seldom get clear public figures about such things. But when then-U.S. President Trump called off a planned military exercise with South Korea after meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, during which he promised that he would call them off, Trump said that canceling the exercises would actually save the country a lot of money as part of his justification for ordering that cancellation. U.S. officials later said that the canceled exercise would have cost the U.S. about $14 million, though they didn't get into the specifics about the breakdown of that figure, or whether that was average, high, or low compared to other exercises that the U.S. conducts with allies around the world each year. So while there are no doubt quite a few benefits gleaned from these joint military exercises, there are also costs some of them geopolitical, as they could potentially worsen relations that are already strained and gin up concern in regions that might benefit more from some type of de-escalation. That said, there's also a chance that a demonstration of force and capability could serve as a solid enough deterrent to justify those downsides, at least in some cases, and perhaps especially 
when there are back channels in place so that miscommunication doesn't risk leading to escalation. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Delusions of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups, by William J. Bernstein. This is a consistently applicable topic, I think, and I suspect that will continue to be the case well into the future, just because of the nature of humans and how we think and do things, and how that thinking tends to be adjusted when we are in groups of people. But this book was written by a guy who is a neurologist and a financial scholar, I want to say, and it's a look at the history and the causes of various financial and religious manias in particular, and how those got started, how they escalated, what happened, and why we are so susceptible to these types of things, especially once we as individuals aggregate into groups. And there's a collection of different variables that change when we are parts of groups or perceive ourselves to be parts of groups, as opposed to thinking as we do typically as individuals. And those adjustments are fascinating, but this collection of historical happenings is also quite interesting and illustrative, and I personally think very helpful when we look at these types of manias in the contemporary age as well. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Delusions of Crowds by William J. Bernstein. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can sign up to receive a daily email from me in which I curate and summarize the news at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.